Hey, just a little poll tonight. How many of you like these screens here like this? Uh, how many, let's put it this way. How many of you would prefer one big overhead screen? Oh, my. How many of you, forget the overhead screen, I just like these nice little screens. What's that? Oh, two over there? Maybe, well, we could maybe do, do something like that. But uh, So how many of you, again, like the big overhead screen? Raise your hand again. Okay, keep, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Uh, we need some donations tonight. <laughs> hey, our, our, our machine blew out today. Just blew out. Just fried. Blew out. Blew out. It couldn't handle all of the truth that we were sharing this morning. It's bloof, blew out. Psalm chapter 8. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, what rich psalms, what rich, the treasury of Israel. We, we delve into tonight, Lord. Help us to uncover the riches of your word. Help us, Lord, to draw close to you in heart and soul and mind and spirit. Lord, thank you that you've redeemed us and saved us. Help us, Lord, to pour out our hearts and our all to you and to walk, Lord, in a close connection with you as we, as we find here in these psalms. Work in our lives uh, as we work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Author Ron Allen, he rolls up this vast array of psalms in one short sentence. It goes like this. Life is tough, but God is good. Life is tough, but God is good. I like that summation. Here are the 150 psalms in seven words. Life is tough, but God is good. Tonight we start in Psalm 8. There we go. You know, I mentioned last week that the introductions to the psalms were not in the original text. They are, though, very old. In fact, some of the uh, words that appear in these comments... Uh, they're very difficult to translate because they're so obsolete. And Psalm 8 here is a good example. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. The Hebrew word getith is translated instrument of Gath. You know, David did spend some time in the Philistine town. And he may have been exposed to some musical instruments indigenous to the city. But there are, though, some other possibilities. It could have been, this could have been the song that was sung over Goliath of Gath after David struck him down and lopped off his head. That would be interesting. Another possibility is it could have been the song written for Obed-Edom, who was from the town of Gath. He was a Gittite who kept the Ark of the Covenant in his house for a time. And then still other Bible scholars trace this word back to the word wine press. It may have been a song sung by the workers as they squeezed out the grapes, you know, as they stomped the grapes between their toes. I would have liked that job, you know, just stomping the grapes and squeezing them out between your toes. Verse 1 tells us, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who set your glory above the heavens. Now, do you recognize any of these names? Chi Bing Xing, Wei Yang, Kei Zhao, Fei Ching. You recognize any of those names? You watched them. You watched these people. They were, always, they were all Chinese gold medal winners in the recent Olympics. They were all gymnastic gold medal winners, all these names. And it's interesting, after the Beijing Olympics, these names became household names in every home in China. We don't know them, though, do we? And why is that? It's because you're not really famous until your name is known in all of the earth. And look at what the psalmist says about our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth. Our Lord, Jehovah God, is so great, He's so glorious, that His name is known in every hamlet, every village, every corner of the planet. Jesus is famous everywhere. We sing this verse in our worship. You, O Lord, the famous one, the famous one, great is your name in all the earth. That comes right here from Psalm 8, verse 1. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. 
because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting, Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. You know, after he had ridden his donkey down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, the crowds were cheering him, they were hailing him Messiah. After he had cleansed the temple, the children in the temple started crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And that's when we're told that the priests became indignant and they confronted Jesus. They said, do you hear what these folks are saying? And in response to their question, Jesus quotes this verse from this psalm. In fact, he does more than quote it. He interprets it as he quotes it. Jesus can do that. He says this, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you, Lord, have perfected praise. Jesus translates strength from the psalm as perfected or completed. And why not? For praise is our strength, is it not? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The praise of God is our strength. We are most qualified for whatever task God gives us when our focus is off ourselves and we're praising God and our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Praise is perfected. Strength is undiluted in awe-filled childlike faith. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? that you visit him. Imagine the shepherd boy David. He's got his sleeping bag rolled out. He's out in the field. He's tending his father's flocks. He's, he's under a starry sky. He's gazing up at the heavens. He sees this ocean of stars, this celestial sea above him, and he admires the genius of God. Wow, God, how you've created all of these stars. But then it hits him. While he's sitting there on earth thinking about God, God is in heaven thinking about him. Isn't that amazing? What is man that you're mindful of him? God has cosmic vistas to enjoy. He can go anywhere, see anything, watch anything. His eyes might behold, but his attention is fixated on earthlings, on you and me, on our lives today. Isn't that amazing? And David marvels at it all. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's an interesting question. What is man? What is man? Plato, the great Greek philosopher, he searched and searched for a name that would describe man. Finally, he settled on this name, featherless biped. Featherless biped. It worked well until one of his students one day threw a plucked chicken over the academy wall. And it had a placard around its neck that read, Plato's man. His stunt pointed out that Plato's wisdom was a little inadequate. Charles Darwin referred to mankind as the most efficient animal. Philosopher Ed Carnell, he went as far as calling us a grown-up germ. German rocket scientist Werner von Braun, he probably had one of the best definitions, he labeled mankind as the only computer that can be mass-produced with unskilled labor. <laughs> <laughs> what is man? Are we simply a mature monkey or are we some magnificent machine? Did you know that in 2002, last time I checked, the total cost of the raw materials that make up a human body was $4.50? If we just condensed you down to the bare essentials, you're worth about $4.50. And based on the price of cowhide, your skin would be about $3 of that $400.50. The rest of you is a buck and change. That's about what you're worth once you get past the skin. Reduce a human being to his or her most basic physical composition and we're nothing but glorified mud balls. And yet Psalm 8 teaches us that the value of man can't be measured by looking inward but by looking upward. We are special. We gain our significance and our value because we are special to God. We are valued by Him. This is what we're told here in verse 5. For you have made Him a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned Him with glory and honor. You have made Him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, 
even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. God has created us in His image. And according to David, though we started out a little lower than the angels, we're destined one day to rule over them. God has given to mankind dominion over His creation. And one day, He will place all things under human feet. Imagine that. Of course, God's plan for man was spoiled by the sin of the first man, Adam. We've talked about that. G.K. Chesterton, he said of mankind, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. We see that, don't we? What is man? Augustine answered, man is a good thing spoiled. American philosopher Will Rogers, he put it this way, God made man a little lower than the angels, and he's been getting a little lower ever since. Today mankind lives in a fallen state, but we will arise. We all will be exalted, for what was spoiled by the first man, Adam, will be restored by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, a human becomes all a human was meant to be. You know, when Jesus returns, our bodies will be transformed. We will share in the very glory that God gave to Jesus. We'll become brilliant, magnificent beings after the image and reflection of Jesus Christ. Emerson notes our future glory. He says, could you envision, see yourself the man God meant? You never more would be the man you are content. You know, the human potential movement has missed the boat. We reach our full potential not by seeking to be our own God, but by bowing down to the true God, Jesus Christ. That's where we become self-actualized and become the best that we can be. The chapter ends how it begins. The first line and the last line are identical. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now Psalm 9 is prefaced with a cryptic notation. To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. You ever heard that song? It's, it's really kind of catchy. Death of a Son? Not really. Sounds like a dirge, does it not? Lamentation, Death of the Son. The Hebrew word translated Death of the Son is Muthleben. The term can also be translated Death of the Champion. And there is an ancient tradition that ties this psalm to the death of Goliath of Gath, the giant that David slayed. A Jewish commentary on the Bible, the Targum, it adds these words to this psalm. It says, concerning the death of the man who went forth between the camps. And remember, this is what Goliath did as he went back and forth from the Philistine camp to the Israeli camp, taunting the armies of God and defying and blaspheming the God of Israel. You know, some folks see too in Psalm 9 a picture of the Antichrist who also will go out between the camps in the last days in the valley of Megiddo at the last battle. And there he'll blaspheme God. But the son of David, Jesus Christ, will come and slay the champion. And here's the message of Psalm 9. Woe to those who defy the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Notice the four I wills of worship. I will praise. I will tell. I will be glad. I will sing. I will. There's much I could say about each one of these I wills. That's, that's your homework for tonight. I don't have time. But I will say this about worship. Worship involves determination. You see, a Christian wills to worship. He chooses to worship. He recognizes God's worth and God's glory. And he gives glory back to God. He chooses to worship. Satan will try his best to create every diversion imaginable to prevent your worship. If you don't make up your mind, if you don't say, I will worship, I will praise, I will tell, I will be glad, I will sing. If it's, there's not a will in there, you're not going to worship the Lord. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Again, the presence of God overcame Goliath there in the valley of Elah. 
For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment. And here it seems that the scope of the psalm really transcends any localized battle between David and Goliath. For verse 8, God will judge the whole world. He says, He shall judge the world in righteousness. And He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You know, a refuge was a cave tucked away up in the top parts of the mountainside. It was a hideout, so to speak. It was a place where a man could flee and find safety and find security. Where is your refuge tonight? Do you have a refuge? When the stress builds, when the pressure comes on you, you think you can't take it any longer? Where do you run? Where do you hide? Everyone needs a hideout. Everyone needs a getaway. In Haiti, we call it a safe house. My, oh, my, you go down to Port-au-Prince and there's chaos all over the streets. There's danger all around you. You need a safe house that you can run to and find refuge. The psalmist says that our Lord, he says, the Lord is my refuge. He's my safe house. He's my hiding place. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. You know, Zion was originally the name of the southern section of Jerusalem. Later, it was associated with the Temple Mount itself. And then other scriptures actually uh, associate Mount Zion with heaven. Sometimes it, it's used synonymously. Verse 12, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. You know, one day God will avenge the innocent blood of all the innocent people throughout time. One day he will. He does not forget the cry of the humble. And Jesus won't forget your cry. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. Notice this. They fall into their own trap. The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Beware. Beware when you sin. Often the wicked is ensnared in the work of His own hands. Once Nick used the pocket knife that his granddaddy had given him to carve up a mahogany desk, a beautiful desk, nice new mahogany desk that we had inherited from some relatives. It was a nice piece of furniture. And he'd used that pocket knife. He'd carved right into it. And Kathy and I were so mad. And and to make matters worse, at first he denied it. But he was the obvious culprit. For he carved his own name in the furniture. Just said, Nick. Yeah. You're denying this, son? You think Zach's going to carve Nick in the mahogany desk? Here, evil men get ensnared in a web that's weaved by their own hands. Verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Too often, leaders of nations act like God. Act like they think they're God. Lord, act in such a way. Put people in fear. Let people know that they are but men. You know, the nations forget God. And when you forget God, when you forget who God is, you forget who you are. That's why you've always got to get a clear understanding of God. Remember, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 10 
has no title, but it is probably a continuation of Psalm 9. It's interesting that in the original language, both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 formed an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is, don't you? You know, each section begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, of course, this format was a tool that helped the reader memorize the psalm. And so Psalm 9 and 10 are a unit. Verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Psalm 10 opens with the psalmist pondering the age-old problem. Why do the wicked prosper? Who hasn't struggled with this? He wonders why God's judgment is not immediate. And notice he accuses God here of standing afar off, of hiding himself in times of trouble. You know, there are occasions when God does seem distant, but always remember he's not. The Lord is never far away, even in times of trouble. Even though we might feel that he is, he's not. He's always right with us. Even when the prideful, wicked man picks on the poor, God is there. God sees. God knows. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is none, is in none of his thoughts. You know, the goal of Christian discipleship is to allow God to pervade and to permeate all of my thoughts. Elsewhere, we're told to be renewed in our minds. And I want God to challenge my every assumption and to corral my imagination and to color my perspective with His Word. I want God to be in all of my thoughts. But I suppose pagan discipleship is described here in verse 4. The opposite of Christian discipleship is here in verse 4. God is in none of his thoughts. You know, this, this is uh, the guy who's diametrically opposite of where he needs to be. And the absence of God in his thoughts makes him proud, notice. You know, the boastful man's thoughts have created the absence of God on his face and in his step. Notice here the psalmist says, his proud countenance does not seek God. You ever seen anybody with a proud countenance? You just look at them and they got this cock. That's what he's talking about. Even in his body language, even in his expressions, you see his pride and his arrogance, his wrinkled brow, his stern look, his stiff upper lip. Man, this guy's cocky. Once Abraham Lincoln had selected several people to political posts, and when asked about a qualified man that Lincoln had overlooked, the wise president explained, oh, no, 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 not that man. I don't like his face. Well, the guy who was talking to me, he challenged him. He said, Mr. President, he said, don't, don't you think it's inappropriate to disqualify someone for something as superficial as, as the look of their face? And that's when President Lincoln replied, Every man over 40 is responsible for his face. Now, if you've ever seen Abraham Lincoln's face, you can't, well. But, but every man over 40 is responsible for his face. You know, you decide eventually where the wrinkles go. You know that. You decide. Whether you want the wrinkles in the shape of a smile or whether you want them in the shape of a frown. Over time, you decide where they go by where you've put them most often, most regularly. Every man and woman over 40 is responsible for their face. Often the content, content of our heart is revealed by the look on our face. That's what the psalmist says here. Here the man who never thinks about God, he has a proud countenance. Verse 5, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. And the psalmist is upset. This is what concerns him. He said, this proud man is prospering. I don't get it. He's renounced the Lord. He doesn't have God in his thoughts. Why does God ignore him? Why isn't God judging this man? He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. What arrogance this guy has. He's mocking God and God's righteousness. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. 
His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. This guy is diabolical. He plots an advantage over the poor and the innocent. And so he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. You see, this proud man has misinterpreted God's silence and God's patience. He he assumes that God has forgotten, or or worse, that God has approved of what he's doing. This is a mistake many people make. You know, often wicked people will think that they're, uh, you know, God must be pleased with them. I mean, life's going so good. Not, Not necessarily. A lot of people think, well, I, I'm, I'm pulling one over on God and I'm getting away with it. Don't be so naive. Just because God hasn't d- judged you yet doesn't mean that God won't judge you still. Just beware. Just because he hasn't judged you yet doesn't mean he can't or he won't. David says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. And over and over in the Psalms, you notice how David prays, Arise, O Lord. I like that. Arise, O Lord. Take action. Look up. See what's happening. He prays with anticipation. Arise, O Lord. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. And what a serious miscalculation to think that God will not require an account. It's been said, The mill of God grinds slowly but it grinds to powder. Judgment will come eventually in God's time. You know, God's judgments don't always come quickly. God is seldom in a hurry. But when God's judgment does arise, and it does come, it comes decisively and thoroughly. It grinds to powder. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The proud man recounts examples of God's willingness to judge the wicked. He, he, He thinks that he's the exception to the rule. And of course he's deluded. We're told the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Isn't that interesting? God helps those that have no one else to help them. I like that. You're the helpless. You're the helper of the fatherless. Jehovah is the God of the underdog, I like to say. It's true. He will help the humble. In verse 15, the psalmist cries for justice. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. You ever prayed that? Just break his arm, God. I love these psalms, man. They're just so honest and they're just so real. Break his arm. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You'll prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. David's life before he became king can be divided into three periods. His earliest years were spent in the countryside, tending his father's flocks. He worshipped God under the stars, as we've already seen. His faith was being formed in those early days. David then spent time in the court of Saul. And these were the years where he learned wisdom and restraint and submission and selflessness. The countryside, in the court. And then finally, David spent a number of years in the cave, in the wilderness, on the run from King Saul. And it was during these fugitive years that he learned the art of war can divide David's life up, the countryside, the court, the cave. There's no reference to David here, uh, to when David wrote Psalm 11, but from its contents, it was probably during this period in Saul's court. In the mount, in the Lord, Psalm 11, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string. 
that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, when David joined Saul's court, it didn't take long for jealousy to set into Saul's heart. Saul kept hearing, Saul had slayed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And the cheers of the crowd and all, and the adoration that David was receiving made Saul jealous. God's hand was on David. And it made Saul envious. In fact, it drove Saul mad. Twice Saul took the javelin and he threw it at David and tried to pin the young boy up against the wall. Every day during this period, David awoke and he wondered if that day would be his last. His situation was hopeless. I mean, to whom do you appeal when the king is against you? I mean, if you've got a problem with the king, you know, in that culture, you've run out of appeals. His friends counseled him to flee to the mountains like a bird. I mean, the foundations of truth and righteousness had eroded, and David found himself in great trouble. You know, when your foundations start to erode, how do you react? You can read the handwriting on the wall. You're about to lose your job. A serious rift has developed in your marriage. That child you've been praying for just is slipping further and further away. When life gets tough, do you ever want to flee like a bird? Just flee, just get away. Instead of fleeing to the mountains, notice here the psalmist enters the temple. Rather than run away, he runs to the Lord. That's that's the best thing. He seeks the Lord in the midst of his trouble. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now notice this. Notice how differently his circumstances seem when he sees them from God's perspective. For he looks, and who is on the throne? Previously, the only person he saw on the throne was Saul, that raging maniac. But he goes into the temple. He runs to the Lord, not away from his situation. And now he sees who on the throne? God is on his throne. The Lord's throne is in heaven, he says. You see, Saul is really just a puppet in the game. The Lord is the one who's pulling the strings. The Lord is the one who's really in charge. He says, his eyes, behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God is in heaven, and he's squinting down at David. He's squinting. His eyelids are narrowing. He's squinting down at David. And when our eyelids narrow, it means that we're examining a situation. And that's what God is doing for David. He's examining his situation. His eyes are on him. He's squinting at him. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For a time, the righteous are tense. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. The righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. It could have come when the Ziphites wanted to sit by David with a dagger in his back. This may have is a psalm written by David with a dagger in his back. This may have been penned when Ahithophel, his trusted counselor and friend, sided with God, always sides on those who do right. He says he loves righteousness. Psalm 12, Psalm 12 is a psalm written by David, dagger in his back. This may have been penned when Ahithophel, David's kingdom, in the end, God always sides on those who do right. In the end, God always sides on those who do right. He says he loves righteousness. Psalm 12 is a psalm, is a psalm, psalm 12 is a psalm written by in his back. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. God eventually will come to David's rest. And in the end, God always on those who, right, those who do right. He says he loves righteousness. When and to Saul, there's several possible. Not a godly man. They've all disappeared, he says. 
They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. They're all hypocrites, man. They butter you up. They tell you what you want to hear. They say one thing and they mean something different. Nobody's honest. And he's not talking about people running for the presidency. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? David wants God to cut off the lips and cut out the tongues of these wicked men. As a true warrior, he prays for a violent remedy. It would be fitting, though, if those who boasted with their tongue lost its use. He says, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. And verses 6 through 8 contrast the words of men with the words of God. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Wow, who do you want to listen to? God who speaks words that are tried like silver, like like tried silver, like purified silver. Do you want to listen to those words or do you want to listen to the garbage of wicked men? And David here in this psalm, he makes four statements about the word of God you should take note of. First, God's words are true. They're true. He says the words of the Lord are pure. Notice second, they're tested. They're like silver tried in a furnace. Notice third, they're trustworthy. God preserves His Word. He keeps it. And notice fourth, they're timeless. His Word lasts forever. True and tested and trustworthy and timeless are the words of God. Well, Psalm 13 was probably written during David's fugitive years. Now he's in exile. He's on the run from Saul. He's estranged from the people he loves. And you can hear the anguish in his voice as he begins. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Notice here David cries out four times, how long? In 1996, we took a family vacation out west. At the time, Mac was five years old. And we drove from Oregon all the way down to the Grand Canyon. And all I can remember about the trip was Mac asking every 15 minutes, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And and, and honestly, for a (laughs) five-year-old, those were some long, long stretches that must have seemed like an eternity to him. And his question basically was, How long, Dad? How long? Imagine David. He's sitting in his cave, in the shade of his cave, out in the hot Judean desert. On occasion, he hikes down the mountainside to sort of cool off in the, in the streams there in Engedi. It, it's been nearly 20 years now since the prophet Samuel had come to his house and had taken the ram's horn full of oil and had poured it out over his head and had anointed him king over Israel. For the last seven years He's been treated not like a king, but like a king of beasts, like a wild animal. He's been hunted by Saul. Saul's treated him like a beast, like an animal. And David is sitting here thinking, how long? How long is this going to last? Saul became insanely jealous over David's popularity. Despite David's loyalty to Saul, the king eventually viewed him as his rival, a threat to his throne. And Saul's driving passion above all other matters was to kill David. Thus, David spent seven years of his life in the wilderness dodging Saul. He's always on the move. He's always looking over his shoulder. You know, he's always getting reports from the scouts and from the spies. And he's sitting thinking, God, how long will it be before you fulfill your promises? How long is this nightmare going to continue? How long? Have you ever asked? Have you ever cried out, God, how long? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
Now, notice David believes in a resurrection. Death is not the end. He, he knows that the Spirit goes to God at death. David's focus, though, is on the body. And he knows that his body will sleep until the last day. When at the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise, Paul tells us. And then those who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to be with Jesus. The rapture marks the resurrection of the bodies of those who've trusted in God. But again, even with the rapture, the question is, how long? Aren't we asking that today? Oh, Lord, how long? As Christians, it's important that we remember that God is never, ever in a hurry. And that God's timetable is different from our timetable. I hope you know that by now. The great preacher Phillips Brooks, he was pacing the floor one day. He was walking back and forth and back and forth. And someone asked him, he said, Phillips, what's the problem? And Phillips Brooks replied, the problem is I am in a hurry and God is not. That's often the problem, isn't it? You can't rush God. You can't hurry God. You know, nothing is more frustrating for a football fan than for the stadium clock to malfunction and for them to announce that they're going to be keeping the time on the sidelines by the referee. Man, that is horrible. Because all of a sudden you're watching this game and you've got no idea how much time is left. How long? You don't know. But this is the Christian life. This is the life we live. We're constantly asking God, how long? And God answers, be faithful. Just be faithful. Here David is saying that he doesn't want to die. He says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Four times David asks how long. Three times he says, lest. Lest my enemies say. Lest those who trouble me rejoice. Three times he says, lest or what if. You know, here are the enemies of faith. There are two enemies of faith. Here they are. How long and what if. How long or what if. When you came in here tonight, you were probably asking one of those two questions. How long, God? What, what if? You know, we try to be patient. We try to wait on God. We're dealing with the how long, but then the what ifs begin to torture us. These what ifs make us antsy and they, and they ratchet up our anxiety. We, we have as much control over the what ifs as we do the, do the how longs, and they both bother us. They both are in God's hands, not hands, not our hands, not our hands. Now, here's the cure control over the what ifs as we do the how longs, and they both bother us. They both are in God's hands, not our hands. We're dealing with the how long, but then the what ifs begin to torture us. These what ifs make us make us ant will. We can rest in God's will. If God pushes pause, then He knows what's going to transpire in the meantime. We've got to get a handle on the how long and the what ifs. If not, that tag team duo will pin our faith. We've got to learn to wait and to rest. Verse five. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Remember, twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul. Once in the cave, once in Saul's camp. But David rightly understood that it was not his place to decide Saul's fate. He would not circumvent God's will. David tells God that he's waiting on your mercy and your salvation. Lord, you deal with this problem. I'm not going to. You know, real faith is willing to leave the matter into God's hands. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And it's amazing how uh, much difference a little patience can make to your perspective. You know, he re remembers he needs to wait, and now he's singing, and he's praising God, and he's talking about how bountifully God's been to him. Just put a little add a little patience to your perspective, and it it'll change. And David concludes, the Lord has fulfilled his promises in the past. He will in the future. It's interesting, Psalm 13 begins with sighing, but it ends with singing. Nothing has changed in David's circumstances, mind you, but a dramatic shift has occurred in his heart because he's learning to wait.
Psalm 14, the last psalm we'll deal with tonight, was written by David during a time when Israel was held captive by its enemies. The only occasion in David's lifetime when that was the case was just before he slew the Philistine giant. Prior to his defeat of Goliath, the Philistines had control of the land of Israel. And Psalm 14 may have been written in response to Goliath's mockings and his blasphemies when he came out to defy the armies of God and to mock the God of Israel. You know, it's interesting, the lyrics of Psalm 14 are almost identical to the lyrics of Psalm 53. Psalm 14 begins, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's a cartoon I like, it's called The Agnostic Fleas. Two fleas are walking across the furry landscape of the back of a dog when one says to the other, do we have it? There we go. One says to the other, I wonder if there really is a dog. You get it? It takes a fool. It takes a fool to repudiate the existence of God. You know, the evidence for God's existence is so overwhelming. The order and symmetry within nature, the complexities of human life, all life, the nature of mankind himself, all these things overwhelmingly shout of a creator, of, of a maker. You know, with the discovery of the DNA, the old idea of biogenesis, that inanimate matter coupled with energy given enough time can produce a living thing. That's been thrown out the window. That idea has become laughable even among geneticists. It's now conceded that a fourth element, not just matter and energy and time, but a fourth element, information, the DNA, or, or intelligence is required for the creation of life. And where does intelligence come from apart from an intelligent being? Where does information come from apart from one who gives that information? You don't get an information-rich system by chance and by randomness. Nobel Prize winner Fred Hoyle conducted research to estimate the probability of the simplest cells forming through naturalistic evolution. And Hoyle made this conclusion. He said, the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make the random concept absurd. He won a Nobel Prize. As a piece of art requires an artist, has a watch, necessitates a watchmaker, the orderly world that we live in had to have had a creator. Order in life never flow out of chance and chaos. Complex systems don't spring from chance occurrences of accidental circumstances. Only a fool denies the existence of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. It's interesting, Paul will quote Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 to conclude that we're all sinners, that every man and every woman is born with rebellion in their heart. You know, the reason that man doesn't gravitate toward God is the same reason that a thief doesn't run to a policeman. It's true. The reason we don't gravitate toward God is that we know that we're guilty of sin. That's our problem. And this is why the fool denies the existence of God. It's not that he can't believe in God. It's that he doesn't want to believe in God. There's plenty of evidence to believe in God. But he doesn't want to believe in God because he'd have to admit his sin and he'd have to believe that there's someone in authority over him that he needs to submit to and obey. Deep inside, he knows God exists, but it's easier for him to deny God than to obey God. Here's a true statement. Earth houses atheists many. Hell is not occupied by any. Earth houses atheists many. Hell is not occupied by any. The fool wises up when he gets to hell. 
Not a person in hell tonight who doesn't believe in God. Verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. I mean, the workers of iniquity, they add to their judgment by picking on the poor and the the oppressed. He says, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. You're picking on the poor, but you've forgotten that the poor has a friend, that God is his refuge. You know, I'll never forget, I was 13 years old, and I went with a friend of mine named Corky, and we went up to DeKalb College to play some tennis together. We were playing tennis when just outside the fence, right behind me, there were three little goofy twerps, little little guys, little twerpy guys. There were three little guys with one really big guy standing right next to them. And the three little guys, they were teasing me relentless. And, and I got mad. You know, I, I got to a point where I was done with the teasing, you know. And I turned around and I told them, just, you just need to shut up or else. Well, the problem is they chose the or else. But rather than one of the three little terpy guys walking around the fence to fight me, they sent the big guy. Big, huge, brute, man. I didn't stand a chance. I fought him, man, but he beat me to a pulp. One punch, I was decked. But I learned a big lesson that day. Don't ever pick a fight with people who have a really big friend. This is what the fool here in Psalm 14 learns. He picks on the poor, but the poor man, he runs to God. God is his refuge. God will defend his people. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And David may have been the answer to his own prayer, might he? Uh, David was the salvation that God used to overthrow, to defeat Goliath and to overthrow the Philistines. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And there we have Psalm 14. So next week... Read Psalm 15 through 21, 22. Read the next seven psalms. Seven seems to be a number that's working for us. So read the next seven psalms.